Last summer in Whitesburg, Kentucky, the river flooded and took with it a big chunk of Appalachia's collective memory, the arts and culture hub, Apple Shop. Volunteers and workers here at the Apple Shop in Whitesburg are working extremely hard to get their archives out of their building after it was overwhelmed by floodwaters. Apple Shop's community theater and radio station had been under six feet of water. File cabinets of tangled cassette tapes and loose film strips were knotted together. The community theater and radio station were caked with mud. This is kind of the epicenter of Appalachia's collective memory when you think about it, as we have recorded it in film and media. And seeing those pictures, um, just my stomach dropped. I couldn't believe um, what I was looking at. The archive is actually uh, was, was about six feet underwater. Appalachian archives, of course, hold memories of music and folktales, but also of the region's strong activist history. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, keeping records as the climate changes. Appalachia has a rich history of environmental activism. Groups like the Clinch Collective have formed to protect the plants, animals, and people there. Jenny Terman is a professor of history at the University of Virginia College at Wise. She says it's critical we preserve the history of these activists. Jenny, you're interested in not just the history of environmental activism, but preserving the artifacts of that history. What kinds of artifacts are there? Some of the materials I've previously worked with um, can be letters to members of environmental organizations, petitions, um, letters to politicians and elected officials related to environmental campaigns. Um, but some of the more visually interesting materials can be posters, flyers, original artwork that people produce to generate support for their campaigns. Um, and you can also find a good uh, variety of three-dimensional artifacts as well, um, such as T-shirts. Oh, banners. I guess that's not three-dimensional, but larger, larger objects. Even uh, water bottles, pens uh, for, for, the, for the organizations that get a little more uh, sophisticated and and, and, and long term, they'll host special events sometimes throughout the year to rally uh, supporters to their cause. So there can be all kinds of really interesting, interesting things that they have uh, in their possession. Why is it important to preserve them? You know, when you look at especially the history of this region and environmental campaigns, I mean, these are small groups that may pop up just in the context of an urgent need to protect a watershed or protect um, a piece of land from logging or mining. They may not last all that long. You know, if we're preserving these records, we get a better picture of activism and how's it, how it changes across time and place and how these little, you know, smaller organizations can kind of contribute to that bigger pattern. A lot of your work has been focused on Lincoln County, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the history of activism there and what appeals to you. Oh, um, yeah. So Lincoln County is is really interesting there. Um, by the 1960s, like other counties in West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky and Southwest Virginia, there were a lot of activists who had lived there long term, born, raised there, who were mobilized by the war on poverty. And so they joined community action programs, uh, formal quasi-government bodies that were created as part of the war on poverty. So there was already some activism in the county, especially related to public education, um, because a lot of these counties under, had underfunded education systems. So that was already going on, uh, campaigns to kind of reform public education when there was a new crop of migrants who moved into the county because it did also have cheap land. It had um, faced a lot of out-migration. And uh, the population that moved in was fresh out of anti-war protesting, the peace movement, and so these were already very motivated, mobilized, <laughs> mobilized residents. They were young. They tended to be in their 20s to maybe, maybe early, very early 30s. 
And uh, for a time, the idea that they were hoping to implement was to live off the land and just be as self-sufficient as possible. But like other places in West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky and Southwest Virginia at the time, there was also uh, a lot of concern about the rapid expansion of surface mining. So many of these in-migrants by 1974, 75, got involved in um, West Virginia's efforts to try to abolish surface mining. It didn't end up happening that way. But once that was overturned, then they turned their attention to shaping um, what became the Surface Mine Control and Reclamation Act. So a lot of their activism initially was related to environmental protection. And that continued well on into the 1990s there with the migrants who stayed long term. So with this idea of preserving physical artifacts from that activism, what's been done in Lincoln County? What sort of artifacts are being preserved from that? I do know that Marshall University, over the course of several decades, has acquired transcripts from some of the environmental campaigns, some of the public hearings. One of my mentors and an individual who moved to Lincoln County named Paul Salstrom, he's a historian uh, as well, recently retired. He actually, after doing his back to the land thing, went to Marshall University and conducted a number of oral histories. And I think he kind of laid the groundwork and there have been subsequent um, interviews to pop up that were housed there uh, from, uh, from other campaigns. Before you came to Virginia, you worked in Nebraska. You were part of something there called History Harvest. Tell me about what that is. So, um, yeah, I pretty much as soon as I moved out uh, to Nebraska, um, so History Harvests are digitization events. So you would actually take scanners and cameras and oral history equipment out to a community, um, maybe on a Saturday in October. Students are involved in this, so they'll um, man all the equipment and then uh, conduct oral histories and then what we call data curation on the back end, where once you digitize all of this information, you put it onto um, the History Harvest website. So it's publicly accessible to anybody who would like to research it. So now in Virginia, what's happening in a history harvest kind of way? I suppose the last three semesters working with the Clinch Coalition, um, which is another local grassroots organization that formed in the late 1990s in response to a threat to clear-cut high knob, which is kind of our, our key landscape feature here. It's the most distinctive mountain in the area. Um, and it is also our premier recreation spot. And it was back then too. It's owned by um, the National Forest. And so they formed 25 years ago to try to block what was a proposed, I think, 1,400-acre clear-cut operation. And they did succeed in getting the acreage reduced by over half. And so in conjunction with their 25th anniversary, I have had uh, one class conduct oral histories with their founding and a couple of current members and then two other public history classes that have worked on presenting their history to the public in digital form. And so this last semester, we decided to have basically a history harvest with, uh, with the members. We had already digitized some of their materials because they've collected memorabilia in a scrapbook. So we had the scrapbooks, but we wanted to kind of do a deeper dive into some of their additional materials, get some of those three-dimensional promotional objects, things like that. So they came in October. We spent about four hours with them and did the same thing. We had students working on scanning uh, additional scrapbook material, um, newspaper articles, internal documents, records, things like that, um, and then photographing three-dimensional objects and doing a couple additional interviews as well. What are some of the more unusual items that people brought forth for you to preserve? There is one that I was really fascinated uh, with that we can't actually publish, uh, and that's the petition that had thousands of names on it, but because it's sensitive information, cannot release that to the public. A lot of these folks are still living. What petition? Um, so the petition was um, one of their early campaign initiatives, again, uh, related to that clear cut. 
and really why it's so remarkable to get thousands of names is this is a this is an area that's heavily dependent on resource extraction a lot of people support the coal industry they've made their livelihoods on it but they also it demonstrates that people care tremendously about preserving and protecting their natural resources as well i mean thousands of people came together to try to persuade elected officials in the the national forest to reconsider that clear cut and so it's a really valuable piece of information and I personally like the the swag, <laughs> I like the T-shirts um, with all of the really interesting designs that their members created. Describe one or two of the T-shirts you saw. Well, my favorites are the ones with the the Hellbender. <laughs> They sponsor the high, high Knob Hellbender race, which um, I've never had the courage to run, but it's straight up High Knob, from Norton to High Knob. And so they have these wonderful illustrations of, you know, the Hellbender and uh, kind of doing, uh, I don't know if he's actually running in any of them, but he's kind of featured prominently in their, uh, in the logo for the event, so... And a hellbender is sort of a native giant salamander? Yeah, native giant salamander. They're in the Appalachians. They are severely threatened. They're losing their habitat because of, you know, silt, uh, runoff, uh, pollutants, things like that. But they they extended all the way from the Appalachians to um, to the Ozarks. And so depending on where you are, you might learn that they're um, mud puppies or snot otters. That's my favorite. Um, so they have a lot of... <laughs> Colorful <laughs> nicknames. <laughs> Last summer in 22, devastating flooding hit parts of Kentucky and elsewhere, and you helped out when there was flooding at a particular museum or workshop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Tell me about that. Yeah, so um, this was uh, late last July. Um, I was actually traveling. I was in Denver for my my annual trip out there to the Rockies. I saw pictures on social media of Apple Shop's facility in Whitesburg, which is in right downtown, um, which is right next to a river. For folks who don't know, Apple Shop is a media and arts production company that has been serving the region uh, since since the late 1960s. It was a it was a a program funded in part by uh, War on Poverty uh, and government funds as a public arts and media company and has produced some of the most important documentaries on our region, films, sound recordings, cassettes. Uh, they also have a theater production company and, and a radio station as well. And this is kind of the epicenter of Appalachia's collective memory when you think about it. And seeing those pictures, just my stomach dropped. I couldn't believe what I was looking at because the archive was about six feet underwater. Um, that included their paper archives and then their media as well. I reached out to um, their archivist and asked her if there was anything I could do. And as soon as the floodwaters receded, I went over there uh, the first day of cleanup. And um, yeah, it was just, <laughs> I'm still getting emotional thinking about it now because when floodwaters hit, as far as archives are concerned, it's a ticking clock. The key is, is getting it out as quickly as possible, getting it dried off or getting it in some kind of cold storage so it won't deteriorate. There must have been so many people who rushed to their aid. Yes, I actually got there pretty early uh, in the day. I think I arrived by 10. And by the end of the day, uh, there were probably something upwards of 30 to 40 people there just literally getting their hands and feet dirty, you know, slopping around in the mud, getting things out of that building. And the media had come as well. So various reporters from the state and from national media, it did kind of mobilize over the course of just a few hours. It's such a reminder of how damaging the climate is between earthquakes and tornadoes and flooding and such, not just pulling forgotten items together from people's attics, but also preserving what we have in plain sight. 
It is. And I think if I had um, any sort of word of caution to folks listening who have family heirlooms, family records, think about, you know, what you would like to see happen with those. You know, take measures to protect and preserve them and and keep in mind that, yeah, I mean, we never know when we're going to have an attic fire or something like that, and you're going to lose lose that material that's important to your uh, family identity um, or your organizational identity. Um, These are precious records. This is our collective memory. And a lot of times, unfortunately, we, uh, we don't think about that type of thing until something happens. So... Jenny Terman is a professor of history at the University of Virginia College at Wise. Sea level is rising fast. And in some neighborhoods, such as South Norfolk, Virginia, the solutions aren't coming fast enough. Local disaster plans are prepping for Category 3 hurricanes. But the people who live there are worried about where to park during thunderstorms. And the wrong decision could lead to a flooded car, or worse. Nicole Hutton is a professor of geology at Old Dominion University. And she says the people closest to the problem are the closest to the solution. Nicole, what is the goal in the movement toward environmental justice? Who is environmental justice aimed toward? Environmental justice is aimed towards traditionally underserved and currently underserved populations. And it's seeking to make sure that a range of lived experiences end up at the decision-making table and not only are invited to the table, but that the resources get to communities that have traditionally been underserved. And it's not just financial resources, it's data and information that communities often end up participating in, but not receiving directly. If they have put their time, energy, health commitments into the research, then it needs to make it back to them so that they can use it to amplify their own voices. Does that happen often? Can you think of an example of people who are over-surveyed and underserved? Yes, that unfortunately happens quite often. I'm thinking of an example in the south side of Norfolk, which is the Campostella and Berkeley neighborhoods. So they are coastal neighborhoods, and they have a lot of coal dust The EPA has studied this coal dust, the Environmental Protection Agency, and that study hasn't made it back to the people that are living with the coal dust. Where's the coal dust from and how bad is it? So there are rail lines that go through Campostella and Berkeley neighborhoods and they carry coal. And so that's where the coal dust is coming from. And it's bad. It is noticeable. The the residents there are aware that they're affected by this on a regular basis. Is it just grimy and dirty and gets on everything from cars to outdoor furniture and what have you, or are they worried about breathing it in? Both. Yeah. So what they want to know isn't just how they experience it, but what are the effects long-term? And this links up with other areas where they don't feel like they're informed enough. Uh, So Norfolk has some significant issues with tidal flooding. Sometimes we call it nuisance flooding because we think that this is normal, but it is not in other places and it should be fixed. And Norfolk is invested in fixing some of this tidal flooding that we experience and protecting the city and its assets. But the concerns in Campostella and Berkeley is that the money isn't being equitably distributed. So they've been working closer with Norfolk's Resilience Office recently in conjunction with Old Dominion University to ensure that the solutions to sea level rise that we're implementing in Norfolk aren't ignoring them. And that the big scale solutions like walls that go in won't leave them without options. So I was talking to a woman while we were driving through Campostella and Berkeley on a bus, and she was explaining to me that although the city is very concerned about Category 3 hurricanes coming through, which we haven't seen in Norfolk in a while, um, 
that she is concerned that her little sports car is going to flood out because this happens on a regular basis. It could be a daily basis depending on where she parks. So she's always adapting where she parks her car. And then she hears, oh, well, we have to prepare for this huge storm. But she just wants her daily situation to get better. And what do we mean by equitably distributing the money? Where's the money going to mitigate flooded neighborhoods and roads that they're not seeing a piece of, for instance? So unfortunately, this happens across the country. Money is often reinvested based off of the tax base where it was collected. And so communities that are contributing less taxes may not be first priority on a city's list to mitigate flooding. And so the argument for environmental justice there is that you want to distribute funds based off of the risk, not necessarily based off of the tax bracket that people are falling into. There's another small town that's dealing with flooding issues in Virginia that you've had experience with trying to help. And this is called West Point. Tell me the experience there and the epiphany you had about their one flooded street. Sure. So West Point is a peninsula at the intersection of the Pamunkey and the Mattapani Rivers, and it's where the the York River starts. This community is surrounded on three sides by water, and the interaction that I've had with West Point was actually them educating me on their issues and trying to plug them back in with agencies like the Virginia Department of Transportation that they've worked with before to continue the conversation. And what was concerning there is there's a road called Kirby Street that floods all the time. It can be with the tides. It can be with other rain events or things like that. Kirby Street is always flooding. And they don't want Kirby Street to always be flooding because that's a, a key way in and out of this area. So what we were able to do with West Point was just reinforce their efforts and go back to actually a variety of agencies to say what hasn't worked here in the past. We appreciate that you've tried this option before and we're not presenting you with anything new, but we want to make sure that it sticks this time. What you were able to do is give them support, give them added research options and help add your voice to the agencies that might be able to do something about it. Yeah. Did you ever drive through a flooded Kirby Street? <laughs> um, so West Point better connected me to the hazards that I experience on a regular basis. So actually on the way to Old Dominion University, my drive-in almost every morning, you have to time with the tide because you can't take a street called Llewellyn when it's high tide ever. There's potholes that keep reopening and I get it. They have tried to fix it over and over and over, but saltwater floods there twice a day. And so that asphalt is never really going to hold. Um, so despite the best efforts of many agencies here and communities here that are trying to hold this space, it isn't being held. And it's fascinating uh, to, to be able to make that connection because I, I then wonder, why am I not advocating more for my area? And some of it is, I don't want to be a guinea pig myself. So I understand why communities don't want to constantly be the subject of research. What do you mean, don't want to be a guinea pig? How would you be a guinea pig? <laughs> um, so I think this speaks to why I do resilience-related work to begin with. I never wanted to study myself because no one wants to be a research subject. Um, but... I do represent a vulnerable population. I have a congenital birth defect and I wear a lower left arm prosthesis. And so I experience hazards differently than other people because I have electricity needs to power my arm that other people don't have. And so when I'm evacuating for a hurricane, I have to figure out where I'm going to have access to power and make sure I bring this medical device with me. And so... As someone with that experience, it's exciting to be able to work with a variety of individuals who have a different experience to get them at the table or to amplify what they're saying, because often they're already at these tables. They're at city council meetings. They 
are in the government, but there aren't enough individuals with the same experience or building on their experience. And that's something that Old Dominion University is trying to plug in with. We're trying to be there with them to build this sort of critical mass to say it isn't just residents of West Point or residents of Campus Stella in Berkeley that care about this. We care too, and we can bring data to the table to help make the case that, that the community is trying to make. And not necessarily our case that we wanted to make when we came in, but their case that needs to be argued based off of what happens on a daily basis. I just have time for one last story. And this is a remarkable experience you had with the Pamunkey tribe along the Pamunkey River in Virginia and what their coastal erosion needs were and how people weren't really helping them. Sure. We worked with the Pamunkey a few years ago. And originally, I was that researcher that came in with an idea to study a population in an area that experiences a lot of flooding from sea level rise. So the Pamunkey Reservation is a peninsula that sticks out into the Pamunkey River, and thus it has almost four sides surrounded by shoreline because it's a very tiny road to get in and out <laughs> that actually connects them to the rest of the peninsula. And like other researchers, I had ideas of what might work here, but I was really excited to get to work with a tribal liaison there who informed me that this happens to them all the time. And what they really needed was a priority list that they could share with researchers to say, this is what we care about. In that list was erosion, not sea level rise, but sea level rise is associated with erosion. So I was able to talk with her and some of her tribe members and residents on the reservation who said that in the last 20 to 30 years, they had seen entire roads that were no longer usable because of how frequently they flood. There was an example where a fishing hut had been taken down to stop some of the erosion there. And it was a cultural loss because fishing huts are a traditional means of life. Some of the members of the tribe thought that that might have been a little hasty to remove that fishing hut, but it was all part of an interest that they had in preserving their shoreline. And so there's riprap along some of the shorelines. So that's boulders that are in the water to, to protect part of the shoreline. There's living shorelines on some sections of the shoreline. So specific plants that are going to help them hold ground. And there are interests in expanding those options. And there are interests in expanding options at other reservations in, in the same area around coastal Virginia. So the Mattapanai, although they don't have the same level of flooding, are still interested in making sure that they don't have issues with erosion. And so it was great to be able to talk to people living the experience and to amplify what they wanted so that it wasn't just researchers like me coming and using our agenda when our agenda isn't really where it's at. Nicole Hutton-Shannon is a professor of geology at Old Dominion University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. There's a water crisis in the Navajo Nation. Over 30% of homes there are without clean, fresh water. Adam Krapel is a professor of law at George Mason University. He says the Navajo Nation's sovereignty puts them outside of the federal government's priorities. A drop of water for Navajo Nation is one less drop for neighboring Arizona, California, and Las Vegas. Adam, government officials knew for years the Navajo Nation's drinking water had toxic levels of uranium, but they weren't told. Why is that? Why weren't the Navajo people themselves told? Uh, well, I'm not completely sure, but like you said, the U.S. did know for decades. Uh, one theory is, uh, you know, it was during the war and they didn't want to interfere uh, with the demand for uranium by uh, notifying Navajo that you know, it was toxic and that might deter Navajos from working in the mines. In fact, uh, several Navajos 
used uh, mine tailings to build the foundations for their houses. And they also um, would plan the water that was leached from uh, the uranium mines. Uh, Ezra Rosser, in his new book on the Navajo Nation, he asserts uh, the U.S. government and mining companies just considered the Navajo people expendable, so that's why they didn't bother telling them. Once it was discovered, were the Navajo people able to stop using the contaminated water? Uh, Unfortunately, uh, many of the mines on the Navajo Nation uranium mines are still unclaimed. And at the rate reclamation is proceeding, it's going to take decades, uh, maybe uh, a century, before all the mines are reclaimed. So unfortunately, uh, uranium is still an issue on the Navajo Reservation. But people aren't drinking it, right? Uh, Some don't really have a choice. Uh, Some of the wells are unregulated that people go to. So it's quite possible that still people are still accessing. I've read there's even a condition caused by uranium in the water called Navajo neuropathy. Have you heard of that? Uh, yes, ma'am. I've heard of it. Uh, the numbers are probably higher than reported due to uh, lack of access to health care and issues like that on the reservation. Uh, many cases of many illnesses are not uh, documented because people just don't go to health care providers. Tell me a little bit more about the reservation, where it is, the size, and maybe the rough population of people. Uh, sure. The Navajo Nation is located in the four corners of the U.S., Uh, So the Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico corners are part of the Navajo Nation. The Colorado corner is Mount Ute. And for perspective, it's um, the size of West Virginia with a population roughly one-tenth of West Virginia. And the uranium contamination is not the only water problem they have. How prevalent are water shortages and problems with contamination? Yeah, so water shortages are a really big issue on the Navajo Nation. So many homes, it's estimated roughly 30%, do not have uh, running water. So this means people have to um, go off res or um, to wells located on the reservation and collect their water for the week or however long. And hopefully that doesn't run out, which forces people to ration the water and do things like that. And the water that people are accessing isn't always uh, regulated. So it's not clear what contaminants may be in the water. A lot of homes on the Navajo Reservation uh, lack access to those um, things that most Americans take for granted. Uh, Access to safe water, uh, sinks, uh, just things that most Americans assume everybody has, are uh, absent on many reservation homes. There was a 2016 report um, by the House, and it estimated roughly uh, 48% of houses in Indian country. Uh, Indian country is defined as all land within the boundaries of a reservation, uh, like access to safe water, um, basic waste disposal, and things like that. So these problems are prevalent in much of Indian country. Is it that the water isn't safe or that there just isn't water? Doesn't the Navajo land abut the Colorado River, for instance? Yeah, so the shortage is definitely... Um, the most pressing issue facing the Navajo Nation right now. Part of the reason is uh, water is just uh, very scarce in the western U.S. And the tribe does abut the Colorado River, and it does have a priority claim. But the problem is, each drop of water the Navajo Nation gets, that's one less drop of water available to places like Arizona, uh, Las Vegas, and California. So you have competing interests at play. And the tribe's legal rights are running into issues with um, off-reservations demands. So that is the conundrum that tribes are currently facing. So why are the 170,000 people who live on those lands getting less water than, let's say, a comparable 170,000 people living off the reservation from the Colorado River. A comparable off-reservation population? Yeah. Well, um, part of that is um, just historic neglect. So although the federal government is the tribe's trustee and has responsibilities to um, provide um, infrastructure and things like this to reservations, the federal government's historically neglected uh, this obligation. And instead of building water infrastructure on Navajo Nation, it was placing those funds to build up water infrastructure in Phoenix, uh, Las Vegas, uh, Los Angeles, places like that. So that's part of the reason. Another reason is the Navajo Nation has really low population density. Again, there's about 178,000 people living in an area the size of West Virginia. So just cost-to-benefit ratio, uh, for lack of a better term, makes it more expensive to build infrastructure when people are that spread out. So what are the odds that the Navajo people would get their full share of water from the Colorado River? 
Uh, zero. <laughs> yeah, if the Navajo Nation used its uh, full water quotient, uh, that would basically dry up Arizona, or particularly Phoenix, and other major cities out west. And uh, that's just not going to happen, even though the tribe's water rights might be strong. I just don't foresee a court enforcing those rights when it comes into um, such severe conflict with off-reservation users. And what could you see as a more reasonable water take and solution to this that doesn't dry up nearby cities, but also gives more water access to the people? So one thing is uh, people out West in particular are probably just going to have to start being uh, much more careful with the way they use water. So we might not have so many golf courses in Arizona and other desert places. That might be one thing. But in the short term, what tribes are trying to do, and I say short term, and that should be in quotes, uh, tribes are increasingly negotiating water rights settlements with the surrounding state. So these settlements, what they do is the tribes have very strong legal claims to water, and the tribes themselves know they're not going to be fully enforced. And the state knows the tribes have very strong claims, but the strong claim is going to take forever to litigate in court. So what they choose to do is go through a settlement process. The tribe will typically agree to cede some of its water in exchange for funding to develop infrastructure and things like that on the reservation. And um, the settlements often take decades to reach. So it might not be a short-term solution. But um, given the water crisis, uh, Congress might get more involved and try to resolve these claims more quickly. There's been more sympathy in the general population and on the part of government officials in recent decades toward the needs and the plight of American Indians, wouldn't you say? Uh, Yes and no. So um, tribes are definitely getting a lot more attention than they have in the past. Part of this is due to social media, um, just the general awareness of minority issues in the United States history. And um, tribes are, you know, featured now in major television and film productions like Yellowstone and Wind River. But how this has translated into reality, it's created more visibility, but not much has changed. So tribes still face uh, severe constraints on their sovereignty that were imposed upon them in the early 1800s and they're still dealing with. What about in U.S. courts? How are courts on issues of water rights and tribes? Yeah, so the water rights claims, that's one of the interesting things. So most cases involving tribes can be adjudicated in federal courts. But when it comes to water rights, uh, Congress passed the McCarran Amendment. I want to say it was around the 60s. And this forces tribes to litigate their water rights in state courts. One of the purposes of the federal court system was to avoid bias by getting a neutral federal court judge who's appointed for life, whereas state court judges are elected. Whatever their decisions are are going to be considered next time they're up for re-election. So tribes are forced to litigate their water rights in state courts usually. So um, this is not typically good for tribal water rights settlements, This, or excuse me, water rights litigation. This doesn't mean tribes always lose, but it definitely um, calls into question when the state's determining tribal water rights, they're going to impact state citizens. You referred to the tribes negotiating for and trading for water rights and the process that could take decades. It feels like We're trapping tribes and people who live on reservations in a really hopeless situation. Uh, Yeah, so definitely uh, tribes definitely have their uh, hands tied. Tribal governments, although they're sovereigns, they face severe constraints just performing basic government functions. So a 1978 Supreme Court case, for example, decided tribes cannot arrest and prosecute non-Indians. So this means if a non-Indian goes stab a tribal citizen right in front of the whole tribe, uh, the tribe legally cannot prosecute that person. Being able to enforce public safety is one of the foremost sovereign functions. But if you can't perform that sovereign function, you know, your hands are severely tied. And that's just one constraint on tribal sovereignty that makes it really difficult for tribes. Adam Krapel, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Adam Krapel is an assistant professor of law at George Mason University and director of the Tribal Law and Economics program there. My next guest and his family have watched trees disappear from their land for years, and there's nothing they can do about it. Matt Kerwin is an associate professor of physical sciences at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science at William & Mary. 
He says as sea level rises, the soil is becoming too salty for some trees to survive. And the marshes are migrating inland and creating ghost forests to save themselves. Matt, you are seeing marshes that are migrating along the Chesapeake Bay into forest land. What do you mean? The marshes are extending indefinitely west? Well, they're extending west, but more importantly, they're extending to higher and higher elevations. They're moving with sea level rise and forming in places that used to be forests uh, just a decade ago. So we're losing marshes and we're losing forests. We are. Uh, sea level rise leads to ecosystems that, that change, and they change rapidly and move to places where they hadn't existed in the past. Uh, so on one hand, we've lost about 100,000 acres of marshes across the Chesapeake Bay uh, due to sea level rise and coastal erosion. But on the other hand, we've also gained about 100,000 acres of marshes as they've moved into forests and farmland. When did you in your career, really notice that? When did you start to notice, wow, the, the edges of the forest are wet and this marsh is seeping in? That's a good question. Um, it's something that people that have lived in the Chesapeake Bay region for a long period of time have, have always sort of realized. If you look at just about any uh, marsh, there's usually dead trees along the edges of it. I guess it really became noticeable to me when my father bought a 200-acre piece of marsh and forest back in about year 2000. And today, I would say we have less than half of our trees remaining. Oh, you lost that much? Yes. And it's, you know, it's a little tricky because you lose. it's not like you lose it all at one time. You lose uh, a few trees every year. And it doesn't sound like much if you're thinking about it over a year or two, but you over decades, it amounts to, to a lot of lost land, a lot of lost forest. And just over my lifetime, it's become wetter and wetter to the point at which we've lost more than half of our trees. It's an alarming feeling, I think, isn't it? When you're, when you're devoted to the land, you know it, and you see it being gobbled up by the water. It is alarming, but it happens at a pace that's just slow enough that you don't really think about it from uh, from day to day. Uh, it's not until you look back over a longer period of time where you realize, wow, I just lost that stand of trees in the last 20 years, even though you might not notice the death of each individual tree. So I don't know that I'd call it alarming. It's, it's concerning for sure. And um there's a sense of inevitability around it um, where you don't really know what to do. It's, uh, you know it's happening, but there's not much you can do about it. Of course, it's been happening for eons, right? It has. Uh, we call dead stands of trees next to marshes, we call them ghost forests. And ghost forests have been described for more than 100 years, actually in the Chesapeake Bay. And we've always had dead trees adjacent to marshes, but the biggest difference now is that they're forming much more quickly. I had a graduate student, her name was Natalie Schieter, who was from Germany, and she reconstructed rates of forest retreat um, over the last uh, six or seven centuries, actually. And she found that marshes had been migrating into forests for many centuries, but that at about 1850 to 1900, the rate uh, dramatically increased. And basically every decade over the last 100 years, marshes have been migrating into forests at ever faster rates. So the last 10 years faster than 10 years before that? That's right. How'd she do that? How did she put together an understanding of where the edge of the forest had been, let's say, five or 600 years ago? Natalie used a variety of methods for reconstructing the really old rates of forest retreat, determining where the forest was 500 years ago. She was taking sediment cores in what looks like today a perfectly natural marsh uh, with no indication of a forest that used to be there. So she would take a sediment core and then look at the layers in the core, and she could distinguish between really organic-rich soils that only form in marshes from soils with very little organic matter in them that formed under the forests. And so she was able to use sediment cores to reconstruct 
where the forest was 500 years ago. And then she took multiple soil cores and measured its retreat through time. She then compared the stratigraphic record of forest retreat to modern records of forest retreat from historical maps and aerial photographs, land use. So they showed where forests were, where marshes were, where houses were, where agricultural fields were. And she was able to overlay where all these different land uses were 150 years ago and was able to compare that to uh, where the marshes and forests are today. And needless to say, the, the results were really striking. It uh, led to the discovery that 100,000 acres of uplands have already converted to marshes. Uplands are the forests adjacent to the marshes? Uh, I use the word uplands because it was both forests and agricultural fields. Um, in the last 150 yeah. years, we've lost about 100,000 acres of uplands, 80% of which was forest. Can you think of a point off the coast of Virginia, near where you are, where there was once forest, where there's now water? I mean, how how far out could you go if you were looking for a reference point? Yeah, um, places where the land uh, is has a really flat topographic slope. The former forest might extend out a couple hundred yards from the modern forest. And again, the only clue that you would have that it used to be a forest is the remains of a few stumps here and there that are otherwise covered and disguised by the marsh growing over it. Now, in other places, the distance of the ghost forest and what used to be forest might only be 20 yards. So it it really depends on, on the slope of the land. Places where the land is really flat have big, wide, extensive ghost forests where a little bit of sea level rise has inundated a lot of land. Places uh, with steep riverbanks might have no ghost forests or, or very or very few. Where else are we seeing this along the East Coast? Ghost forests have been observed up and down the Atlantic coast of North America from Canada all the way south to Florida. Uh, and the ghost forests are really different. In Canada, they're red spruce uh, trees that have died. And in Florida, there's literally palm tree ghost forests. Is it worse in some areas than others? It is. The hot spot for ghost forests and sea level driven land conversion in general is really the mid-Atlantic region and the Chesapeake Bay in particular. And that's for two reasons, basically. One is that rates of sea level rise are actually faster in the Chesapeake Bay and the mid-Atlantic region than they are in other places. But an even more important reason is the coastal plain of Virginia and the coastal plain of the mid-Atlantic is really flat. A little bit of sea level rise leads to a big inundation of land. So we know the seas are rising. About what rate do you know the sea level to be going up in these areas? Sea level rise in the mid-Atlantic is uh, today at about five or six millimeters per year. In the past, it was only a couple millimeters per year. Uh, And then as you move north or south from Virginia and the mid-Atlantic, sea level rise rates decrease a bit. And how, maybe projecting to the end of the century, what are we expecting? We're generally expecting around one meter of sea level rise by the year 2100. And you can, you can imagine that one meter of sea level rise might not make a huge difference in places where the topography is high, where farms and forests and houses are built on bluffs and uh, high elevation areas overlooking the marsh. But in places like the Chesapeake Bay, people live right down into the marsh. And there are entire counties where one meter of topography is, uh, makes every difference between whether it's underwater or on dry land. What would a meter do to your family's land? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say that most of our land is within a meter of high tide currently. And so a, a one meter of sea level rise would definitely lead to the death of every forest, of every tree that we have. In addition to the sadness and horror and financial losses, what are the other harms from sea rise? Or should we just accept it and move back? There used to be an inevitability that 
marshes would be lost with sea level rise. Even even 10 years ago, most people would have argued that our marshes were incredibly vulnerable to sea level rise. But I think this realization that marshes also migrate inland has led to the understanding that many marshes actually might be able to survive sea level rise. Uh, now, they won't be in the place that they are now, and they won't necessarily look exactly like they look now. But on large scales, like the extent of the whole Chesapeake Bay, we'll certainly still have big marshes. In fact, the biggest marshes are in places where there are gentle slopes already. And so those big marshes will get even bigger, whereas we might be losing some of the smaller marshes that don't have room to migrate inland. And marshes are valuable for the diversity of animal life? Marshes are valuable for a lot of reasons. They sequester carbon. They provide habitat for lots of animals and many fish, at least for part of their life cycles. Uh, But more than that, they're valuable because they are very productive. Uh, They um, grow biomass at rates unrivaled by just about any other ecosystem. And that leads to all sorts of benefits like being able to take pollutants and nutrients out of the water, improve water quality, as well as just form a physical buffer between the land and sea that helps prevent coastal erosion. Marshes also help slow the uh, inundation by storm surge, Uh, as well as they've always um, been a natural area that's a place of refuge for a lot of different types of people. Well, Matt Kerwin, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. This is fascinating. You're welcome. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. Matt Kerwin is an associate professor of physical sciences at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science at William & Mary. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. To comment or for the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>